we are studying through the book of Revelation. We'll continue that today, but we are doing this because there is a rumor going around this town. There are those who are saying that the book of Revelation is but oh, contraire, say we, for you see, the word revelation itself means that something has been revealed. revealed. Absolutely. If God wanted to conceal something, he would have called it the concealation, not the revelation. And so what is it that's revealed in this book? Well, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it begins by saying the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to find is that Jesus is going to be revealed throughout this book, not as he was 2,000 years ago, but as he is right now in his eternal, we might say, glorified state. And God so wanted his people to read this book that he promised that for those who would take the time to read this book, that they would receive a very special blessing, which is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Revelation 1, verse 3. Let's look at it. It begins by saying, blessed is he who reads. This is the only book of the Bible that says, read me, I'm special. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. So it would be odd for us to believe in a God who says, I want you to read it. I'll bless you if you read it. I want you to heed it. But here's the thing. You'll never understand it. It'd be hard for us to believe in a God like that. But God knew that there would be people going around saying that the book of Revelation is hard to understand. So God, to make this book understandable, placed in this book its very own outline, which is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse Verse 19, let's look at it. This is the only book of the Bible that comes with its own outline. John is told, he says, therefore write the things which you have seen, that'll be the first division, and the things which are, that will be the second division, and the things which will take place after these things. So John is told, write the things that you have seen. So the question is, what is it that John has seen up to this point? Well, John has seen Jesus in his resurrected, we might say glorified state. And if you look at verse 13 very quickly, it says, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. And it goes on to give this incredible description of Jesus as he would appear right now. That's the first division. But then he says, write the things which are. The things which are pertains to the time period that you and I would call the church age. And that will be found in Revelation chapters two and three. Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches. Now these churches literally existed. He's writing to things in that church. But what we find is that these churches in their order, because this is a prophecy, these churches will lay out with incredible precision 2,000 years of church history. If you reverse any of the order of the churches, it makes no sense. But in their order, they will lay out 2,000 years of church history. But then he says, write the things which will take place after these things. So after what things? We said, well, after chapters two and three, the church age. So when will we find that phrase after these things again? Well, that will be found in Revelation chapter four, verse, Revelation chapter four, verse one. Let's look at it. Revelation chapter four, verse one, after chapters two and three, it begins by saying, after these things. 
Uh, John says, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. The Holy Spirit is so concerned to make sure that we recognize that this is the third division in the book of Revelation, that he begins the verse with after these things, and he ends the verse with the phrase after these things. Now, when we get there, we will find that this is going to be a picture of what we call the rapture of the church. John hears a voice. He looks up. He sees an open door, a voice like a trumpet, the voice says, come up here, and immediately when we get there, we'll see that John is there around the throne uh, with the church. Now, because of that, one of the things that we've noticed is that although the word church will be mentioned over 20 times in the first three chapters, from chapter 4, verse 1, to the end of the book, what one word is going to be glaringly absent? What's the word church? And the reason being is that the church is no longer part of the story, at least on the ground. And as you've heard me say many times, at the end of the book, in the last chapter, in the last few verses, the word church is mentioned, and Jesus says, I wanted to show these things to the churches, but the word church is no longer part of the story. And we'll talk about that when we get there. So the church goes up in chapter four, and then what comes down? Wrath. Wrath. And that is found in Revelation chapter six, verse 16. Let's look at it. Everybody turn over to chapter 6, verse 16. This is the opening volley of that time period that the Bible refers to as the tribulation. And you notice it says, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from him who sits or from the presence of him who sits on the throne. That's a reference to God the Father and from the wrath of the lamb. Now, in the Bible, the lamb is always Jesus. Many people are going to be surprised that one day his wrath is poured out on a world that has rejected him. Now, uh, as you've heard us say that in our church culture, uh, we tend to be very comfortable with the Jesus who says, kiss the babies or kisses the babies and says, be nice to other people. But we're very uncomfortable with the Jesus who says, there comes a time uh, when my wrath is poured out. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Now, because of that, I want to introduce us to a group of people that we are going to encounter at least 10 times in the book of Revelation. So this is verse 16. I want everybody to go back to verse 9. Verse 9. This will be the beginning of that time period. So um, it says, now, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, we'll talk about that when we get there, I, I, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain, they'd been killed, because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. They didn't give up their faith. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those? Now, I want you to underline those who dwell on the earth. And we're going to talk about those people today, those who dwell on the earth. I know some of your Bibles don't say dwell on the earth, uh, but most of your Bibles will say that. But th th this is going to be a unique group of people. This is before verse 16. So uh, when you look at this, some people are uncomfortable with that wrath being poured out. But you and I are created in the image of God. And mommies, you know that when somebody hurts your kid, your inner mommy bear comes out. We've seen it. And, and so you, you become very 
agitated when somebody does something to your child. And, and for you dads, uh, you have said at times, if somebody hurts my kid, it would be better for them to get to prison before I get to them, because if I get to them, prison is going to do no good. Would you dads felt that way at times? Now, you get that because you are created in the image of God. And as you are passionate about your children, God is passionate about his family and those who love him. And uh, this is not a situation where somebody has shoved his kids around on the playground, but they've actually been killed for their testimony, their believing in him. So there comes that day. We're going to talk about those who dwell on the earth in just a few minutes. But I want you to go back to chapter 3. Chapter three. And uh, as we said, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches. And uh, in their order, now these are literal churches. They actually were were there. And uh, what he writes about actually takes place in their church. But what we found is that in their order, they lay out 2,000 years of church history with incredible precision. So if we can begin with a map there. Now that's a map. Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches in what they called Asia back then. Today we would say it's modern day Turkey, absolutely. So the first letter that he wrote, and again, this will lay out 2,000 years of church history, the church was Ephesus, which just means desirable, and it referred to that, that first generation as the church began to go forward, and it was a very special time, and Jesus has great things to say about that church, but he says, but you know, you, you, you've left your first love, and you needed to come back to that, and we talked about that that first week, but then the next church was the church of Smyrna, and Smyrna just means myrrh. Myrrh is an embalming spice that prepares a body to be buried. And uh, so because of that, death and suffering were all over that church, and that represented 250 years of incredible persecution of the church. And to that church, Jesus says, be faithful unto death. There's no promise that they would escape. But then the church becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire there in 313 A.D. And uh, we mentioned that that word, it says Pergamum there. Some of your Bibles will say Pergamus, and we looked at the roots, and it means a marriage. Gamus is a marriage, and per is a mix. It's this marriage, and uh, what we found is it was in that time that the church uh, becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire, that there is a mixture of paganism coming into the church. And we talked about how the surrounding religions that were around the church, they worshipped the queen of heaven. And, uh, and some religions, her name was called Ashtar, and others it was called Ishtar, and uh, she was also the, the goddess of fertility. And so as they worshiped her, they would have symbols such as bunnies and eggs, which are all symbols of fertility. Well, we don't worship Ashtar or Ishtar, we just simply called it Ishtar or Easter, and paganism came into the church. And so we talked about that. Well, in about the 600s, Uh, Another church emerges, and it's called Thyatira, we looked at that word, but that church was focused in on a woman, and they were looking to the woman as opposed to Jesus, and Jesus has to remind that church, he says, hey, I'm the son of God, not the son of this woman, and so we talked about that, how this church begins to focus in on a woman other than uh, as opposed to the Son of God. And we spent an entire week talking uh, about that church. And if you come from my church background, you heard me say uh, what's important, especially if you come from my church background, that church 
was focused in on a woman, but Jesus still called it a church. And he called the people inside of the church his bond servants, but they were being misled as they focused in on this woman. Many of you come from a church background that focuses in on the woman or a woman. Well, then last week, we talked about the Sardis church and how when you look at the roots of that word, you can come up with the word reformation. And, uh, as, and so we looked at that last week, but one of the things we found very interesting is that the word name, name, name uh, kept popping up in that time. And this refers to that Reformation church, which began in the 1500s. And the word name was the word anoma from where we get our English word denoma nation, denomination. And so that's when the denominations began to really become prominent as there was a breakaway from the Catholic church as they, and there was that distance. And so we, we, we talked about that last week, which brings us to the church that we're going to talk about. Have I put you to sleep so far? Okay, well, let's see how we do here. So let's see. So this morning, we're going to talk about the church that we all want to be part of. And I have to say, because we're dealing with Bible prophecy as he lays it out, some things you need to know. First of all, God never tries to be politically correct, and he never tries to be, um, 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 he's not afraid to say things that might be a little bit offensive. So as we get into this today and we begin to unpack this, there might be some things that are uh, maybe a little uh, agitating to some of us. Whenever God reveals something, it's always us who needs, to reveal, uh, who needs to adjust to what it is that he's saying. So we're going to look at that today. So each, each church has a name, and the name is specific. So this is going to be the church we want to be part of. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 3, verse 7. And he says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, you want to underline that, write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens says this. So a couple of things. First of all, Philadelphia just means brotherly love. So you want to write that down. This is the church of brotherly love. This is going to be good news. This church is going to come into existence as we lay out church history in about 1793, give or take, and is going to exist until the time of the rapture. So verse 7, he he says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy and who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this. So in this church, he mentions that there, Jesus says, I'm the one who has the key of David. And uh, when this key opens and no one's going to shut and no one's going to, when I shut, no one's going to open. So this key of David, the Bible always interprets itself. So I placed a verse there from Isaiah where it talks about this, and then we'll unpack it. He says, then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder, and when he opens, no one will shut, and he who shuts, no one will open. So here's the condensed story. You want to go home and read this today. Hezekiah is the king. And there's a guy named Shebna in the, in the kingdom. And he has what's called the key of David. It's a literal key. And in this key, when you had this key, it meant that you had the resources of the kingdom, you had access to the king, and you had authority from the king. So that's what, what that's all about. Now, as you read this story, you'll find that the Shebna doesn't do what he needs to do with that, so it's going to be given to somebody else. Jesus tells us in the book of Revelation, 
I have that. So I, I want you to write this down. Uh, the key of David speaks of access to the king, authority, and resources of the kingdom. Now, that's going to be important. They need to know that uh, because uh, th- this, this, uh, Jesus says, I'm, I have the key, and this key opens, and no one shuts. So here Jesus says this, and, and the reason that's so important is I'm going to pick it up in verse 8. Verse 8. Verse 8. He says to this church, he says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door. And you want to underline that, which no one can shut because you have a little power and you have kept my word, underline that, and you have not denied my name. You've not denied my name. Did you notice that the key of David opens and no one can shut and shuts and no one opens? But when Jesus says, I have this, he says, I'm just putting before you this church, uh, which is, this is going to be opened and no one's going to shut it. But he doesn't say I'm going to shut anything. It's just completely open. So you want to keep that in mind as we go. When you go through the New Testament, you find this phrase, open door, when it talks about an open door, there in your outline, it says, for a wide door of effective service has opened to me. Another place it would say, Paul says, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me in the Lord. What you find is that the open door typically refers to missionary service. You want to write that down, missionary service. And Jesus was the one who said there in your outline, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, what you may not know is that for nearly a thousand years, from the, almost the 1800s, back a thousand years, there was almost no missionary work done by the church. And uh, we're going to talk about that just for a second today. I, I like to bring out, this is I think the last time I'm going to bring out a church history book, but I, I like this book. It's called church, church History and Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. There's a, there's a number of them. They're wonderful. This is just the one that I like. So um, here's how church history records. And you notice as we've been going through, I'm kind of at the end of the book. Can everybody see that? So it says, at the beginning of the 19th century, 1800s, Protestant Christianity scarcely existed outside of Europe and America. Asia was almost untouched by the gospel except for small traces in India and in the East Indies where the Dutch had taken over from the Portuguese. Africa was the dark continent except for the ancient Copts in Egypt and Ethiopia. After 1800 or after 18 centuries, Christianity was far from being a world religion. Christianity, for the most part, did not exist outside of Europe and, and, and America up until the 1800s. The sheer magnitude of the Christian mission in the 19th century is without parallel in human history. A few pages over. It says, by the end of the 19th century, the 1800s, almost every Christian body from the Orthodox Church of Russia to the Salvation Army and almost every country from the Lutheran Church of Finland to the Waldensian Church of Italy to the newest denomination in the United States had its share in the missionary enterprise overseas. See, for over a, about a thousand years, there was hardly any missionary work so that the church did not even exist outside of America and outside of Europe. How many of you never knew that before? So, so it's in this time where there's this explosion of missionary work at the end of the 1700s. Now, I'm going to read very quickly from my seminary church history book. 
It says, interest in non-Christian peoples was aroused in Great Britain by the voyages of discovery in the Pacific under the government auspices conducted by Captain James Cook. These discoveries awakened the missionary zeal of William Carey, a shoemaker and later a Baptist preacher who was to show himself a man of remarkable talents as a linguist, as a botanist, as well as an unquenchable missionary devotion, or unquenchable missionary devotion. This led to the organization of the Baptist Society. I love this. The Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathen. Can you imagine, can you imagine starting an organization like that today? So, so he goes to India and he writes letters back. He goes to India. He spends 10 years. He learns 12 languages. And if you've ever heard the phrase, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God, that comes from William Carey. He is considered the father of the modern missionary movement, which began in 1793. Well, you go a few pages over because of his missionary work. It says, this movement was led by a number of famous missionary pioneers who followed the example of William Carey, first of the, the first of the modern missionary vanguard. David Livingston, you might have heard his name, both Scotsmen serving in, London missionary, in the London Missionary Society, brought the gospel to South Africa. And that was in the uh, early 1800s. The China Inland Mission, founded in 1865 by J. Hudson Taylor, uh, and then it says the missionary efforts changed the religious map of the world and enormously extended influence of evangel evangelicalism. Through this missionary impulse, the foundations of the so-called younger churches, indigenous churches, and non-Christian lands were laid. Few years later, you skip over and there's a man named D.L. Moody. In the period between the Civil War and the First World War, the revival emphasis of American Protestantism was strongly continued. Lay evangelist D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody, uh, was its most conspicuous exponent. Tireless organizer, aggressive pulpiteer, Moody was a powerful force in Protestant life. His revival methods were widely copied and his missionary enthusiasm attributed significantly to the continued growth of the foreign missionary enterprise. So there is, at the end of the 1700s, there is this explosion in missionary work, which had not happened uh, in almost, a, or for about a thousand years. So did you find that at least interesting? Because we grew up thinking that, well, Christianity has always been around the world. So missionaries are going out. Now, you and I are living in a time period where that open door, uh, he says it's going to be open, no one's going to shut, but that door is beginning to shut. What that means is before that door shuts, Jesus will come back for his church. And we'll be talking about that as we go. Verse 8 again, he says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. It was interesting for a thousand years that didn't happen. Because you have a little power and have kept my word. You've kept my word. Interesting, it says they've kept his word. The word there I find interesting is teria, which is kept. It just means to guard, to keep, to observe. And so the emphasis of this church is going to be on keeping his word, which is why every Sunday when we come here, we get into God's word. Now, in the midst of all of this missionary work going on, uh, keeping his word, there's going to be some challenges, and he's going to talk about that. Notice he says in verse 8, he says at the end of it, he says, and you have not denied 
my name. You've not denied my name. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, um, Jesus has a name, and uh, we, we talk about that quite a bit here. From Isaiah, I put this there in your outline. It talks about, we read this at every Christmas. He says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name, you won't underline that, will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, what's that next word? God, and the Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, which is why here at Calvary we always say, all Christians hold that Jesus is God. Everyone else holds that Jesus is not God. It's the dividing line between that which is Christian and that which is not. This church understands who he is, and they have not denied his name. It's at this time period, for the first time in Christian history, that a number of groups begin to emerge who deny that Jesus is the mighty God and the eternal Father. So in the 1870s, did I say this would not be politically correct today, by the way? So in the 1870s, there was a group that came about, and they were called the Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, so, you know, they show up at your house on Saturday morning, you've turned off your lights, you're hiding behind the couch. And as I always say, but they know you're in there. So you sit down with them and you say, well, who is Jesus? Is Jesus God? They would say, no, Jesus is not God. Jesus is Michael the archangel who came to the earth and how he is, he's died and he's gone back to heaven and now he's called King Jesus, but he is not God. Well, again, that's not Christians. They have denied his name. Uh, another group, and I could pull out 20 or so, but the Unity School of Christianity, they, they say that they are Christian. Well, if you say to somebody from that group, who is Jesus? Is he God? They say, no, Jesus is just a man just like you and I. He had the Christ consciousness that we all have, just a normal man. But he was reincarnated so many times that it kind of works out his stuff. And then he just simply ascends into, you know, what, what they ascend into, which is kind of like a nirvana type thing. And so, but he never died on the cross for your sins. He's not God any more than you are God. Well, that is to deny his name. This church focuses in on his word, and they do not deny his name. Does that make sense? So verse 9, we also find in this time uh, that there is uh, something else that takes place in the world and in the world of church. It says, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. And I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know, and I want you to underline that I have loved you. I have loved you. There is a heresy that has really become prominent in the church in this time period. And the heresy is commonly referred to as replacement theology. And replacement theology holds that God is done with the Jewish people. And uh, now the church, they're the, the true Jews, and God is completely done uh, because they rejected the Christ 2,000 years ago, and so God has no more plan for them. That's a heresy. One of the things that we're going to find when we get into Revelation chapter 7 to the end of the book, that it's going to become very Israel-centric. God has a great plan for the Jewish people. And uh, it was the replacement theology where 
people who profess to be followers of Jesus said that God is done with the Jewish people, which led to great persecution of the Jewish people because if God's done with them, then it doesn't really matter. So he says that's a synagogue of Satan. So what I love about this is that they have an open door and there's this explosion of missionary activity in this time. They keep his word. They don't deny his name. They understand that God is not done with the Jewish people. And Jesus declares the last line of verse nine. He says that I have loved you. And Jesus declares that he is his love for this church. It's the only church in all of them where Jesus says, I have loved this church. But you notice they're focusing in on his word. So verse 10, I have placed this on our outline. And uh, I want to read it from our outline because um, it's going to say it. This is from the uh, ESV translation. And uh, you can read it in your Bible. I'm just going to read it on the outline. He says, because you have kept my word about, and this translation says, patient endurance. The Greek word is hupomone. I will keep you from the hour, you want to underline hour, of trial, periosmos, that is coming on the whole world, underline that, to try, periazo, those who dwell on the earth. And I want you to underline those who dwell on the earth. So this is an interesting verse. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Now that the, the Greek word there, uh, hupomone, just means a steadfast or a waiting for. And so many commentators say they're waiting for something. They're waiting for something. And uh, because they're waiting for something, they're going to be kept from something, from that hour. And that hour is to, it says there, to try those who dwell on the earth. And that word there, try, is periazo. It means to test, to scrutinize, to assay, to examine, to go about, to prove, uh, to tempt. So you can translate that a number of ways. When it proves or it assays or it examines, the idea is that uh, it's going to examine or make evident, make evident. It's going to reveal. It's going to reveal. But who is it going to reveal? Well, he says there, he says to try to make evident, to reveal, to assay those who dwell on the earth. You want to underline that. So, when you get into the time period of the tribulation, it's going to be a revealing, a proving, a making evident of a certain group, and they're the ones that the Bible will call 10 times in Revelation, those who dwell on the earth. So I put this there on your uh, outline. And uh, Missler, who is one of my mentors early on in Bible prophecy, like to call them the earth dwellers. But it says they dwell on the earth. And what does that word dwell mean? Well, the word katoikio just means to house permanently. Here's what we're going to find. No matter what, they're saying, this is our home, this earth. You as a believer, is your home here or is your home there? So they're going to be very different. Their home is here. And so uh, that's going to become very evident. So what does the Bible say about this group in that time uh, that they're going to be in that hour? Well, we read it a few minutes ago, and I put this there in your outline from Revelation 6. He says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who'd been slain, killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. 
And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And you want to underline that. So they're hostile to God's people. Another time that we're going to encounter them in Revelation, a little bit later on, he says, and all who dwell on the earth, you want to underline that, will worship him, and that's going to be the Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life, in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Anyone who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So when we encounter this group, they're hostile to Jesus. They're hostile, they're hostile to believers. If they have the opportunity, they're, they're going to kill believers, and we'll certainly see that as we go. God's goodness does not win them. God's wrath does not win them. They are earth dwellers, and they're hostile to Jesus. So we'll be talking about them as we go. So go ahead and, and write this down. It says this is going to come on the whole world. So this is going to be a worldwide trial to reveal the true nature of those who dwell on the earth. That worldwide trial is that time period called the tribulation. That hasn't happened yet. Well, let's pick it up in verse 11. And he says, I am coming quickly. Hold, and you want to underline that. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The word there, crown, is stephanos. It means reward. It's not your salvation. It's, your, it's a reward. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will go out. He will, he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, um, there's a lot in there. I'm not going to unpack all of that. But did you find that at least a little bit interesting today? So what I want to do is I, I want to just give you some perspective. Uh, if I haven't completely put you to sleep yet, and if we can put the map up on the screen. So we're talking about the seven churches and Jesus lays out 2,000 years of church history. And we noticed some things. When Jesus wrote to the church of Ephesus, there was no mention of him coming back. It's not even part of the, the, the discussion. The church of Smyrna, he never mentions coming back. He just says to that church, you're going to go through suffering, be faithful unto death. Then you have the church of Pergamum, uh, Pergamus, uh, and, and there, there is no mention of him coming back. It's not until the church kind of emerges that focuses in on a woman that he begins to talk about him coming back. So that first church was the church of Thyatira. And notice there on your outline, they focused in on the woman. And so he speaks to the institution of that church and he says that, that the institution, at least, is going to go into great tribulation. I put that there in your outline. But the people, he called his bondservants. And those, he said there in your outline, just hold fast until I come. If they're going to hold fast until he comes, they have to exist until he comes. That church that focuses in on the woman will exist until Jesus comes back. Then there was the Sardis church. And last week we developed that, and that refer to the, the, um, the Reformation church. And we notice something about that. To that church, he says, you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. 
they're going to be surprised. If you come from that church background, you've probably never studied through the book of Revelation uh, because it's not really part of their thinking. They would say it's allegorical, it's spiritual, but it's not really part. So it's, he doesn't say they're not saved. They're certainly saved. It's just that they're going to be surprised when he comes. And so we talked about that last week. Well, this week we have the Philadelphia church there on your outline. And Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Now, the interesting thing about that word quickly is taku. It just means suddenly. When he comes, it's going to be suddenly. But he's coming quickly to this church. Some churches says, hold on. But this church, he says, I'm, I'm coming very, very quickly. In order for this church, uh, for him to come quickly, they're going to have to be in existence until he comes. And so we've certainly seen that. But then next week, we're going to look at the Laodicean church, which is the last church before Jesus comes back. And notice what Jesus is going to say to that church there in your outline. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. The Wymouth translation says it like this. It says, I am now standing at the door and am knocking. The idea is that that's the last call before Jesus comes back for the church. And we will look at that next week. You find that interesting today? Good, good. Well, guys, I am so honored and excited about all that God is going to do in the life of our church. Thank you for being here today. And uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, as we wrap this up today, Lord, we want to be the church that is sending with that open door We want to be those who are focusing in on your word, not denying your name. And Lord, as we say, there's so much more in this. We we can't cover every nuance, but Lord, we want to be the church that honors you in, in everything that we do. I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Well, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.